as I said last week, we are in the second part of a series, Redeeming Sex and Sexuality. Uh, I said last week, we're going to focus on God's design this week, going back to what it is that God has established. Last week, we tried to give you just, I, I think, some biblical principles for why we should study this. Today, I want to key in on, on what God has designed. And, and to do that, really need to establish a prerequisite to start with that goes to the heart of God's design. This may sound obvious to you, but to use a term that is often inserted into conversations these days about issues of gender, when we talk about studying God's design, we're talking about something that is binary, meaning that there is, there's two ways of looking at this. Uh, there's, there's two options, and, and biblical teaching and historic Christian doctrine will uphold the reality that, that there is man's way and there is God's way, uh, that, that we have seen throughout the history of the church that there is an approach that is either as described in Scripture that is God's way or there is all the rest that is man's way. And we need to establish that as the foundation to this because the Bible begins with the words, in the beginning, God. And, and, and that, that declaration is an unequivocal statement that there is one pre-existent being. There is one who has always been there and from whom the rest of creation derives its existence. We are all dependent on the, uh, the self-existent one who is God and everything and everyone else derives existence from him. And so in the beginning, God says that God already was from eternity past. He made the universe and he made everything that is in it. And, and everything in it depends on him. To deny that, that proposition is to, as, as we'll see in a moment in, in Romans 1, it is to look into creation. It is to, to look into the stars and gaze into them and knowing full well that even science admits that we cannot comprehend the immensity of the universe. And it's to look into all that and say, well, we can't really explain it. There doesn't seem to be any intelligent design. It just all somehow happened. It spontaneously happened, and yet it evolved very, very slowly over time into this intricate, complicated, breathtaking, unfathomable universe that is all around us. To deny that God existed and designed it and created is to say there is no creator. It all just happened. We somehow got here in, in where we live and how we exist. I, I, I would add this when I think about this and, and the universe. I am, I am amazed at the number of TV shows and, and movies that now use the universe in a personal sense, as if saying the universe, it's somehow a personal being uh, that, that, that moves everything. Uh, the, the universe brought them together. The universe played tricks on them. Who, who or what is this universe that, that is sovereign over people's lives and directs and moves them? We understand from biblical teaching that God sovereignly works all things after the counsel of his will, it says in Ephesians 1. We call that providence, that that's how God directs all things according to his will. And yet unbelievers often attribute that to some unknown impersonal forces in the same way they believe it all came together and formed what we have. I'm starting here because when it comes to sex and sexuality, we're back at that very same foundation. There is man's way of thinking and there is God's way as revealed in scripture. Man's way may take ever-changing forms and, and call itself new and evolving, but the reality is it's all still the same sort of stuff recycled because man is always, his, his way is always fundamentally rooted in rejection of the authority of God. 
Man's way is always rooted in the idea that I, I know it's best. I don't need a, a God to dictate to me or to give me instruction on that, and I'm not accountable to him. Just by way of example, some of you saw this on social media this past week, a singer-actor announcing on Twitter that she now identifies as non-binary and is to now be referred to by they and them pronouns. Now, I would suggest to you that there's issues with that, but I just want to read you portions of her statement. And I want you to see the dominant pronoun in, in the statement that she put out. She said this, I've been healing and self-reflecting and I've had the revelation that I identify as non-binary. I feel that this best represents the fluidity that I feel in my gender expression and allows me to feel the most authentic and true to the person I both know I am and still am discovering. Which pronoun? Is, yeah, I and, and me is over and over again. And... and the last time I looked, that statement had something like 75,000 likes on Twitter and has been described in terms ranging from heroic and courageous to exemplary and bold. I would argue from a biblical worldview, it's really another example of someone saying, I'm in charge of my life. I define myself. I do as I please. And I will not put up with you telling me otherwise, with you trying to counter that in some way. Turn to Romans chapter 1, and let's just spend a couple minutes in Romans 1. We'll be back in Romans 1 at, at other points in this series, but verses, verses 24, 26, 27 all deal with sexual sin, uh, just, just some of the ways the lusts of the heart lead people to do what pleases themselves. But, but sexual sin is, is not some unpardonable sin that, that sort of tops God's list and all other sins are sort of secondary to it or pale in comparison. Sexual sin flows out of something else, what is truly paramount in terms of sin, and it is the sin of unbelief. It is the sin of rejection of the Godhead, that there is a God who must be believed in. All the others flow from this, and we see it in Romans 1, verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools." and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. What, what these verses are describing for us is the actual core sin issue, which is unbelief. It is turning away from the creator God. It is saying that I don't need that creator God. I suppress the truth about that God. I may see something about his existence, but I refuse to believe in him or his truth. And so Romans 1 is simply recounting what, what Genesis 1 tells us, that from the beginning God exists and the creation is something that he has made and it gives resounding testimony to his existence. And yet foolish, futile, unbelieving man gazes at creation, dismisses the idea of a creator, and declares that it all happened somehow from nothing. And though the power and wisdom of God are, are made manifest and are evident in creation, 
Those without Christ, it says, suppress the truth. They, they crush it. They dismiss it because of not wanting to be accountable to him, not wanting to recognize him and his design and his commands as having authority. Man's proper response to the majesty of God in creation, as it describes here, is to honor and to thank him, which it says there the negative. They neither honor nor thank him. That's what we're called to is to thank him. Instead, what it says is man worships the creation other creatures and self and refuses to honor God. So here's the point. For those who will not submit to Jesus Christ, who refuse to believe in God or have tried to make God after their own design, he's some sort of supernatural being, but he's this or that, however they seem to design God. For those who hold to that, God's design for sex and sexuality will ultimately seem foolish. They will see it and they will say this is nonsense. And in fact, in some instances, God's design provokes hostility. That's because there is God's way and there is man's way and there is a conflict between the two. There is God's design in sex, which says that it is for purposes that he has made. He has created it. He has given it. Man rejects that design and uses sex as an object for his own pleasure. Let's be clear now to, to study sex from Scripture means we need to be careful with the Word of God. Because there are passages that are, are, are interpreted in various ways on these matters of sex and sexuality, and we're going to need to walk carefully through these if we're going to claim biblical authority for God's design. We can't wrongly interpret either, because there were clergy back in the Middle Ages who, who believed in the authority of Scripture and who preached that sexual intercourse and marriage was forbidden on Fridays because that's when Jesus died, and forbidden on Sundays because that was the Lord's Day, and forbidden for long periods during Lent because that was the rule they came up with. Uh, they, they would say that they were people who trusted in the authority of the Word of God, and yet they came up with things that are not found in Scripture. So we need to approach Scripture with a careful commitment to study His Word well, to look at context, to handle it well, and, and to handle it accurately so that we don't forbid what God permits and we don't permit what God forbids. So with that in mind, go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We, we left off in, in 1 Corinthians 6 last week. Um, this is God's word, again, speaking on this particular topic of sexual sin. 1 Corinthians 6, again, where we left off, verse 18, down to the end of the chapter. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom you have from God, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. All right, we've, we've set the foundation that it's ultimately God's way, God's design, which must be rooted in God's word. But here's the starting point on our thinking about sex and sexuality. It must be ruled by this. It is for his glory. What we do with our bodies. He'll go on to say later on in 1 Corinthians, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. It is for his glory. He has given this as a gift to be used for his glory. Paul Tripp, in a, a book on this subject, and I, I'm trying each week at the end of the sermon notes to include these book references, if it's something that you would want to read on your own, another excellent book on this topic, distinguishes between what he describes as a big picture view of sex and a little picture sex, as he describes it. This little picture view revolves around attractions and feelings and, and desires. It, it's the man who complains that his wife does not satisfy him. It's the woman who uses sex to get love. It's the teenage boy 
employee who tries to coerce his girlfriend or the, the boss who manipulates a female subordinate at work. It's the young woman who deems herself an influencer and who uses social media and generates money from scantily clad photos. It's the fantasies that our, our culture encourages that we import into our expectations for our spouse's physique and performance. All of these things make sex and sexuality about me, what I want, what I expect, what pleases me. But if sex is created by God, as we're going to see when we go back to Genesis, and is a gift from God and serves then to even help us better understand our union with Christ, which is what we saw last week in the scripture, then sex is not ultimate. God is, and our identity is not wrapped up in our, our sexuality. Our identity is wrapped up in our identity in Christ, in who we are in Jesus. The Bible shows us that this power and intimacy and emotion of sex are meant in part to help us be better worshipers, to help us understand the, the knowledge of God and his intimate love for us. But too often we allow the power and the intimacy and the emotion connected with sex to tempt us into displacing Christ and worshiping the creation instead of the creator in some form. Let's go back to Genesis 1. Let's go to the starting point. This is where we'll spend the majority of the rest of our time in Genesis chapter 1. And God's design... For man and for woman, and then for marriage, Genesis 1, he's walked through the creation of land and sea and day and night and each of the days of creation. And in Genesis 1, verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Pause there. This is the starting point. This is the, the foundation at the pinnacle of God's creative work. Having created everything else around man, he now creates man. And there's, there's three particular distinctives that, that seem to apply here in his creation of man that, that are different than what's come before that in his creation of all of the other living creatures. The first one is image and likeness. That's the first distinctive. All human beings are accorded this honor. Nothing else in creation is given this privilege of being made in the image and likeness of God. We are made after him. Uh, Genesis 5 helps us a little bit to understand what this means because it repeats this same description, being made in the image of likeness, male and female, he created them. And then in Genesis 5.3, it says of Adam, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. What we see there in Genesis 5 is that there's a, a, as there's a sense of recognition between a parent and a child, so there is between God and man. It's not an exact physical depiction, but there's a clear resemblance. As one commentator puts it, it's, it's in the same way a child mirrors the attitudes, expressions, and character traits of his or her father. By God's creative work, we are able to mirror 
attributes of God, some of those attributes, not all of them, and none of them perfectly, and yet enough to see a resemblance between God and man. God is autonomous. We are dependent. God is perfect and holy. We are not. We are sinners. And yet, at the same time, we have a capacity for emotional, moral reasoning. We have a, a conscience that responds to conviction. This, these are distinctives that set us apart from the rest of creation. And so when you, when you say no to the dog and they make that sad sort of look, it's not because they're being convicted in their heart. It's because behaviorally they've been taught that your tone of voice and that word no means they messed up at that point and aren't going to get the treat. We've got something eternally in the heart, internally, that, that says, no, there's conviction here. God's word brings this to bear. We have a thinking, feeling, rational personality unlike the rest of God's creation because we are made in his image and likeness. But then there's a, a second distinctive, and it's the one in verse 27. Male and female, he created them. Up to this point, Genesis has been describing the creation of living creatures, presumably as male and female, and yet this is the, the first place that distinction is being made. Up until this point, he's been making birds and fish and, 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 and creeping animals and cattle, and so male and female has been there for the purpose of reproduction. We've got a, a little nest that, that's made it, a, a wren that has made a nest now in our backyard and, and kind of a hiding spot. It's become sort of the family event to watch all the comings and goings of, of what goes on in this little nest that, that they hatched this week. And now they're there with their little mouths open waiting to be fed. We've been reading about wrens and learning that the father sticks around and he watches the nest and he helps bring food. And I... See, ladies, there's, there is one father in the animal kingdom. He sticks around and he, he participates in the food gathering. But, but ultimately, that in the creation of, of, of the animal kingdom, if you will, all of this is, is sort of taken for granted that there's male and female because it's largely for the purpose of, of reproduction. But as we'll see in chapter 2, male and female also have this unique and complementary role that provides for procreation but extends well beyond that. Procreation is the, the point of it for the rest of creation, but it's important for animal, it's important as well for humans because the, the mandate in Genesis 1:28, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And so procreation, procreation is important, but it's not the sum total of, of, of why God has created male and female. And that's why he delineates here that he has made them male and female. Uh, it should give us pause and we should not take it for granted that he singles this out about humanity. Uh, the, the statement in verse 27 is saying, in God's good design, in his creative work, amongst humanity, he created male and female. They are the same in, in terms of being made in God's image, and yet they are differentiated as male and female. So important, in fact, is the distinction here that chapter 2 will go back and, and rehearse this creation of man and woman and, and, and show the difference in their creation. It starts in Genesis 2-7. The Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. The man became a living creature. That was God's making of Adam. God puts Adam in the garden 
commands Adam to, to have oversight in the garden and, and, and also has Adam bring by all of the, the animals before him. And he's to name all of the animals. And that's when verse 18 then says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. That, that should hit us as jarring. The Lord God said, It is not good. Good. The, the Hebrew wording there of God's sentence, the, the first Hebrew words are not good. The idea is that's the emphasis, that's the underlining. So we've just been through Genesis 1, where at the end of each day of creation, God saw all that he had made, and it was what? Good. And all of a sudden you come to this statement in chapter 2, verse 18, not good, says God. This is not good, and the reason he says that is because the man is lacking intimate companionship. So he parades all of the animals past Adam, and then in verse 20 says, For Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. That word helper is a, a proper translation of the Hebrew, but it also can have wrong connotations in our mind. We, we may um, demean on, on the basis of this word helper as if there's, it's just sort of providing just a little bit of assistance. The, the word for helper, the Hebrew here, is also used in the Old Testament to describe God as the helper of his people. So it's a significant term. Psalm 121, verse 1, I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. The same Hebrew root word is used there. God is our helper. And so it's not a, an insignificant word. It's used in military alliances in several instances in the Old Testament. That, that bringing power and support to a military battle are these alliances, these helps. So the connotation here when it says a helper fit for him is, is not at all to imply that the man has it all together and just needs this little helper who comes along. That's not at all the picture of the Hebrew word. On the contrary, the language fit for him or suitable for him or corresponding to him is to make it clear that the woman corresponded to the man. She is like him, and the helper stresses this complementary partnership. His, his lack has already proved the need for aid and support, and, and she brings it, and they will have mutual companionship. We only need to get to chapter 3 and to man's fall into sin and his rebellion to see the need for this mutual partnership when God says that your help, your redemption, will ultimately come from the seed, from your offspring. That's going to require the man and the woman, and, and that will bring the offspring through which will come the line of Christ and the Savior. All right, let me read on. Genesis 2, verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs, closed up its place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. God made the woman from the same substance as the man, immediately establishing the unity between the two. They are both human beings created in the image of God. In addition, there's more than a few commentators who point out that there would seem to be some symbolism in God using the rib, not the head, not the feet, but it's the, the complementariness of this and that they are side by side with each other. They are together complementing each other in unity and in partnership. 
Adam responds with this joyful exclamation that is poetry in the Hebrew, makes us have some appreciation for Adam in his newfound created sense already bursting forth with some lines of poetry. But when he says, the ESV says, this at last, New American Standard, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. It, it, it is Adam saying, I've seen the rest. I've seen all of God's living creatures. And at last, this one is like me. This is one with whom I can have communion. This is one who is unlike all of the others. And yet they are different. He points out that they are man and they are woman. They are male and female, as has been the case throughout all of the recorded account of creation in Genesis. There is day and night. There is light and darkness. There is land and sea. There is a God who creates and who differentiates in a way that complements one another, that comes alongside and serves one another. There is union and there is distinction. It, ultimately, it should remind us of, of God himself, of a triune God who is one God and yet three persons. All of this then takes us to the, the crucial piece here in the narrative for the purposes of what we're studying, which is verse 24. Adam has finished speaking. Now the writer summarizes verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Notice the, the word therefore, the, the connector in the Hebrew that says all of this, this making of man and woman first identified in chapter 1, now spelled out in detail in chapter 2, therefore serves this purpose in God's design. We read the mandate in chapter 1, verse 28, which was be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. 2.24 now is explaining how this happens, how the male and the female will fill the earth and multiply. They will come together in a unique covenant relationship. That's the language of leaving and cleaving. This is God's design for marriage. This is, this is the foundational point for us in Genesis 2.24 where it is saying this is what God has ordained that there be this covenant of marriage that brings the male and the female together and then they multiply and fill the earth. And so even in, in, in this institution, he's already taking the, the act of sexual union and he is now putting it within that covenant relationship. If you think about it for just a moment, at this point in history, there are no other family relationships. Adam and Eve do not know about cousins and nieces and nephews and, and all of these things. Nonetheless, God from the beginning makes it clear that there is this relationship. And this relationship then supersedes all others. To leave and cling or hold fast is covenant language. So, all commitments and obligations in a person's life are reprioritized at marriage. Marriage now becomes this institution that God has designed that one leaves for and then clings to. When it says leave, it's, it's, it's not focused so much on geography because even in, in Old Testament Israel, they didn't move all that far. When they got married, they tended to stay right on the same land. The, the point is saying in terms of human relationships, when the covenant of marriage is entered into, all other relationships now fall back, and this one comes to the forefront. This is the one where you are joined together exclusively in a mutual pledge to be bound 
closely together. And, and while the act of sexual union is, is not the sum total of what one flesh means, it certainly is envisioned in the idea of one flesh. In fact, when we get to, and we'll look at it later, we get to Leviticus 18. It's one of those passages in God's law that condemns a series of sexual sins and incestuous relationships. Part of the reason that it does that in Leviticus 18 is it's reaffirming, again, that a defining element of the, the, this one relationship is, is sex. The, this one flesh relationship is a defining piece of this, and it is meant to be protected by boundaries to prevent sexual sin, to prevent sexual activity from being outside of the covenant of a husband and a wife. As one commentator put it, monogamous heterosexual marriage was always viewed as the divine norm from the outset of creation. That's why we're, we're, we're reading it here, instituted by God in Genesis 1 and 2. Then protected, bounded, if you will, by the law in Leviticus 18 and Exodus chapter 20 and the, the, the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not commit adultery. And then reaffirmed thousands of years later by Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ will quote Genesis 2.24. Matthew 19, if you want to look there, Jesus is being um, questioned by Pharisees who were trying to set him up, trying to trap him in some way in front of a crowd with a question that they think will, will force him to, to do an either-or here and, and so will upset one group or the other. And so in Matthew 19, verse 3, and Pharisees came up to Jesus and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Jesus answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Lest there be any doubt that Genesis 2.24 is setting the pattern for us, here is our Savior now reaffirming that this is where the mandate comes. You're going to ask me a question about divorce, he says, and, and this, is a, this is a trick question. He's, he's dealing with a crowd that is divided, a percentage of which believe no divorce under any circumstances for any reason, and then the popular concept, which says a man can divorce his wife for just about any reason. And, and, and so he's expected to sort of um, run the needle here through the middle of it, and he doesn't. Jesus says immediately, Don't, haven't you guys read? Haven't you read Genesis? And, and, and in the beginning, how God designed this? Are you not familiar with what the Creator ordained from the beginning? He made us male and female for a, the purposes of a unique covenant relationship between a husband and a wife who then give themselves exclusively to one another and then multiply and fill the earth. So the two are no longer, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. The, the sexual sins that the Bible describes things that we'll be talking about in the weeks to come, all deviate from the pattern established in Genesis chapter 2, which says he created them, male and female. They now leave the other relationships. They cling together in this unique covenant relationship in something that God then guards with his law in Leviticus and Exodus, in which Jesus then affirms. Sexual sin, then, is an attempt to either nullify or ignore what God has designed and ultimately to say, I, I want to do what I want to do. 
I, I, I want to please myself. I don't want to stay within the, the boundaries of this design by God. So what does this mean for understanding sex and sexuality? I want to read you a quote. This is from Pastor Kevin DeYoung, who's written extensively on this topic and written well, and I think it takes us full circle. He's writing about God's design of male and female. He says, far from being a mere cultural construct, God depicts the existence of a man and a woman as essential to his creational plan. The two are neither identical nor interchangeable, but when the woman who was taken out of man joins again with the man in sexual union, the two become one flesh. And hear this part. Dividing the human race into two genders, male and female, one or the other, not both, and not one then, then the other, is not the invention of Victorian prudes or patriarchal oafs. It was God's idea. So we've come full circle. That, that sex is part of God's design, and ultimately there is God's way, and there is everything else, which is ultimately man's way. And so... If you embrace other ideologies, polygamy, open marriage, homosexuality, the notion that sex is just sort of a recreational activity whose only boundary is a partner's consent, then you must concede that you are resisting, rejecting God's design. You are saying, this is my design. This is what I wish to do. This is what I feel like, as opposed to what is designed by God. Now listen, I, I get there's, there's some whatabouts that come up already in Genesis, and we alluded to it last week. What about the polygamy that's already rife in Genesis, or homosexuality that shows up in Sodom pretty early in history, all of the other sexual sins? What we'll see as we continue this study of God's Word is these things that deviate from Genesis 2.24 either are flat out called sin by God, they are declared to be evil and, and contrary to his will, or at minimum, what we see in Scripture is all the consequences of man deviating from his pattern. And so when we come to Abraham and to David, to, to Solomon and the polygamy, it is never endorsed in Scripture. In fact, Scripture, what it shows us is how the disobedience leads to wreckage and fallout, and consequences, some of which even carry over into generations and harm others because of the, the movement away from God's design. The Creator who loves us has a design that is, first and foremost, to glorify Him, and second, then, is good for His people. It is a design that He has made to bless us with. doesn't mean that it's Perfect and carefree. There is, there is suffering and hardship in marriage. There, is, there are some here who are single and who are longing for marriage and ache for it, who we join with you in praying for God to, to bring that spouse, to bring that godly man or woman into your life. There is hardship in marriage. There is suffering that goes on. As Jesus said when he affirmed God's design in Matthew 19, divorce is another sad reminder of life in a broken world. That it is part of the fact that we live in a fallen world. But that doesn't upend the design. That doesn't say then we'll have to come up with a new design. Man will have to evolve and come up with something better. It requires us again to go back and say, here is what God designed. This is what we believe and hold to. 
What God instituted for his people in Genesis 1 and 2 is designed to uphold human dignity. It is to provide a pattern for, for human families and for, for reproduction within and, and the, the creation of children and also to bring glory to God as a husband and wife learn to love and serve each other as Christ and the church did. But we've got to start with his design. Let me just tie this quickly back as we finish to, to, to this point in, in conclusion. The, the, the Christian mission, our, our calling as believers in Jesus Christ, is to glorify God by how we live and think, by, by knowing what he has called us to do and, and obeying it, and, and honoring him with our bodies and living lives that glorify him. Our mission also is to make disciples by living and proclaiming his gospel, by preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is not our job to convert the world to monogamous heterosexual marriage. We should contend for God's good design without shame. We should speak out against deviations from God's design because we, we better than anybody understand the harm and the consequences that come from those things. And show, so we should speak truth. But what sexual sinners need is the grace of God that comes from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Sexual sinners are like liars. They are like people who struggle is with anger or thievery or whatever it is. Ultimately, it comes back to they need a Savior who is Jesus Christ. And we trust that by the, the process of growth and sanctification and change that the Holy Spirit wrought in someone's life, the sexual sin will be brought to conviction as well and changed. But our, our aim, brothers and sisters, is to proclaim to them Christ and to urge them to turn from their sin of unbelief and believe in Jesus and the forgiveness and the hope that he provides if they will turn from their sin and trust in him. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your death in our place and your resurrection to new life. Father, I pray for myself and my brothers and sisters in Christ here, all who profess faith in Christ, living in a, a fallen and broken world and surrounded by temptation. Lord, we plead with you that you would guard our hearts, that you would help us to, to be a people who would, who would seek to stare intently into the, the precious word of God, who would seek to be growing in our relationship and seeing Christ. Lord, that we would desire purity and be in the process of putting to death the deeds of the flesh by the helping of your spirit. I pray that as we walk through some of these areas, as, as people who have come to faith in Christ, we know that we are not perfect. We know that we have not arrived. We know where we continue to struggle with lust and temptation and, and all of the, the range of things we're talking about. Father, we ask for your spirit's help and enabling that we might live out your design. I pray for those in our midst who are single and who are longing for marriage, who are longing for that husband or wife, that companion that Scripture has described in your design. Lord, we come alongside them to pray that you would have for them a, a godly man or woman, one who would love you first and foremost, and who would enter into a covenant relationship that would display Christ in the church. Father, I pray for brothers and sisters this morning who are struggling in marriage with brokenness and all of the, 
all of the consequences of, of being a, a broken people in need of grace. I pray that this morning you would pour down your grace on those marriages that are hurting, struggling, or that you would, by your Spirit's enabling, help us to, to open up our own hearts, to look to our own sin, to confess our own areas of need and rebellion and places where we can repent. Help us then to, to pray for our spouse that you would do your good work in their heart as well. Lord, for those who are not believers in Jesus Christ, who are listening to this, and who perhaps listen to some of this skeptically, find it to be almost foolish that we would believe in what seems to be a, a prudish take on sex. Lord, I pray that your spirit would do the profound work of causing them to see that Jesus Christ is a Savior who gave himself on the cross for sinners to die in our place, to take our judgment and to offer life and hope and forgiveness for all of eternity, to all who will run to him and trust in him. Lord, help us as a body of believers to live in purity. We need your help to do that, but to live out the gospel of Jesus Christ and to speak the truth to a culture around us that is confused, that is caught up in man's way, that is filled with the, the I pronoun in everything they do because it's all governed by what they want and they desire. Lord, help us to, to hold out Christ, the sweet, wonderful Savior. Lord, thank you that you have given us this good gift. Help us to, with our bodies, glorify you in all that we do. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.